This is Francis, and today we're going to be talking about American Dharma, Buddhism Beyond Modernity, a book by Anne Gleig, published by um, uh, Yale University Press in 2019. Gleig's book, called American Dharma, helps us understand how mindfulness made its way onto the cover of Time magazine, what this means for Buddhism, and what it says about North American culture as well as about, as about mindfulness. She looks into why many North American Buddhists are critical of the ever-widening popularity of mindfulness and of how mindfulness is celebrated, especially in the health and fitness communities. One of these critiques has to do with race and how advertising venues like Time Magazine choose white people, usually white blonde women, to depict someone benefiting from mindfulness, when in reality the majority of North American Buddhists are Asian Americans. Other critiques have to do with how an approach to mindfulness that emphasizes its health and fitness benefits actually, actually neglects so much of the context of mindfulness in Buddhism, like ethical or communal practices. On page three of the introduction to her book, Anne Gleig writes, quote, resistance to the mindfulness movement and the American med meditation-based convert Buddhist communities that it grew out of is part of a wider critique of Buddhist modernism, end quote. What is Buddhist modernism? She explains that it's a, quote, historically unprecedented form of Buddhism that came about when traditional forms of Asian Buddhism met up with Western modernity under colonialism. She explains that, quote, Buddhist modernism is the result of modernization and reform processes that have been happening in Asia and the West for more than a century, and that, shaped, that were shaped by some of the big discourses or ideologies of the West, such as science, romanticism, and liberal pro Protestantism. It's also shaped by the kinds of modern values that are part of those discourses, like individuality, democracy, and pluralism. So Buddhism changes every time it moves to a new part of the world, right? So what we're talking about here is how Buddhism has been transformed as it entered the West and was transformed by Western ideas and values. Some people, though, are critical of this transformation, and part of this critique has to do with the modern emphasis in the West on individual meditation practice separated from Buddhist forms of community or ritual practice, for example. Some scholars, such as Joseph Chi, who we'll read more from next week, also point to the role of white supremacy in shaping North American Buddhism. So let's summarize some of the key modernist features of North American Buddhism. First, there's the overwhelming privileging of individual meditation practice. Next is the almost total neglect of community and ritual, both of which are absolutely central to most forms of Buddhism in Asia. 
Next is a distinction between so-called essential and so-called cultural or traditional Buddhism. Essential Buddhism is what some people call modern Western Buddhism, which they contrast to cultural or traditional Asian Buddhism. Finally, there's the fact that meditation-focused Buddhism in North America is overwhelmingly white, liberal, and middle or upper, upper class. But what Anne Gleig wants to do in this book is not only point to these critiques, but also she wants to show how actually there are many North American Buddhist teachers and communities who are acutely aware of these critiques and who are working really hard to move beyond them. Lama Rod Owens is a good example of this. Anne Gleig's book describes a number of Buddhist communities who are themselves critical of the mindfulness movement, not critical of mindfulness practice, but of how mindfulness is presented to a popular audience, and who are focusing strongly on community and ritual, for example. Anne Gleig talks about these kinds of movements, which are a sort of hybrid of the traditional and the modern, as postmodern. She talks about this as a new period in the recent history of Buddhism. The introductory chapter to Anne Gleig's book clarifies a few terms that you'll need to understand if you don't already. One is, quote, convert Buddhism, which is commonly a commonly used term to refer to people who've converted to Buddhism and which is usually referring to white Buddhists. This is distinguished from so-called heritage or ethnic Buddhism as practiced by Asian Americans. Sometimes these groups are also distinguished by how they're thought to practice. Convert Buddhists mainly focus on meditation, and so-called ethnic Buddhists are more focused on cultural preservation or more focused on ritual practices. There are so many problems with using these terms, ouch. But still, you'll see them commonly appearing in lots of presentations of North American Buddhism. Anne Gleig is aware of these problems and follows Joseph Chi in referring to Asian American Buddhists as Buddhists of Asian descent, on the one hand, and meditation-based convert groups, on the other hand. American Buddhists, or North American Buddhists then, would refer to both of these groups, just to all Buddhists in North America. Anne Gleig's research in this book is focused on meditation-based convert groups in particular, as she explains in the introductory chapter. She also writes in her introduction about what post-modernity means. Uh, so let's talk about that for a minute. Of course, this is a big topic, and there are lots of ways that people describe this. But let's stick with how Anne Gleig uses the term. She says that postmodernity post is both an extension of modernity, but also a critique of it. She links it to important economic, sociocultural, and philosophical, aesthetic, and intellectual changes that began to appear around the 1970s. She talks about this time being when Western society started to move from a modern industrial age to a postmodern, post-industrial age. With this comes increasing globalization, the quick uptake of new technologies for communication and information sharing, the restructuring of capitalism, and the rise of consumer culture. She writes, quote, resistance to the totalizing framework of modernity has resulted in the emergence of a plurality of epistemologies, 
and an awareness of the historicity, contingency, and relativ- relativity of each worldview, end quote. So uh, before going on, I want to make sure that you understand the term epistemology. Epistemology refers simply to ways of knowing things, different ways of knowing things that occur in different cultures. And then she talks about the awareness of historicity, contingency, and relativity of each cultural worldview. So that's their sense of history, their sense of the value of truth or the solidity of truth or whether how change might occur in history, and the meaning of truth in general. So those are uh, big terms that um, have a lot of different meanings in different contexts, but I'll read her quote again because it's an important one, and you listen again. So she says, resistance to the totalizing framework of modernity has resulted in the emergence of a plurality of epistemologies, so different ways of knowing things, and an awareness of the historicity, contingency, and relativity of each worldview. So she then goes on to say that this leads to a postmodern cultural sensibility that celebrates diversity and difference. Some of you might be familiar with this celebration of difference as part of the post-colonial critique of Eurocentrism or Western ethnocentrism. Post-colonialism is about uplifting voices that have been forgotten or suppressed by Eurocentrist modernist ideas and practices. And it's about recovering the voices, points of view, and forms of expertise in marginalized or oppressed populations. Part of this is then a renewed respect for so-called traditional worldviews and cultures that had previously been dismissed as quote-unquote primitive or superstitious. So how does this play out in religion? Anne Gleig writes that the postmodern age has seen the rise of religion, and sociologists of religion point to three strands of postmodern religion. One is the rise of global fundamentalism. Another is the rise of deinstitutionalized forms of alternative spiritualities. And another is the relocation of religion of religion or spirituality into secular domains, or the intermingling of the religious and the secular. Each of these three strands of postmodern religion can be seen in meditation-based convert communities in North America. Anne Gleig's research is largely ethnographic, meaning she's embedded herself in Buddhist communities and taken seriously the real lives and points of view of Buddhist individuals. She describes how she does this kind of research in the last few pages of her introduction. I'll now turn to say a few words about chapter one of her book. In this chapter, you'll get an overview of the historical development of Buddhist modernism in Asia and its move to North America. The chapter starts with some of the main Asian Buddhist teachers who came to America and how they described and talks about how they described Buddhism to their American audiences. Two of these early teachers, Anagarika Dharmapala from Sri Lanka 
and Shaku Soen from Japan, described Buddhism as a rational religion that was totally compatible with science and other modern values. Anne Glag talks about how this presentation of Buddhism was a result of the encounter between traditional Buddhism and Western modernity in Asia under the conditions of colonialism. So as she puts it, quote, the rational and scientific vision of Buddhism presented in America in that early period had already been forged through the lens of Western modernity. The rest of her chapter describes this really unique kind of Buddhism that developed in Asia under colonialism. This kind of Buddhism, which is sometimes called Protestant Buddhism or Reform Buddhism, but which, which we're calling here Buddhist modernism, is linked to social reform and nationalist movements, mostly in Sri Lanka, Thailand, and Burma in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. These reforms included a revival of meditation practice in both layperson and monastic communities. The reforms also privileged aspects of Buddhism that were compatible with Western colonial discourses. So for example, Buddhism was reframed as a rational and scientific religion and meditation was elevated to a prominent role for both monastics and lay people. Neither of these attitudes, attitudes were part of traditional Buddhist practice before these reforms. So much of what we think of as Buddhism today was actually shaped during this period under the conditions of colonialism or cultural exchange with the West. The rest of this chapter traces some examples of this development from Burma, Thailand, Japan, and most recently, Tibet. Anne Glag traces how prominent Buddhist teachers in those countries elevated the place of meditation in their traditions and practically eliminated many of the practices that had been the bread and butter practices of Buddhism before then, such as ritual, and how they then later presented these teachings in the West as part of a rational and scientific tradition. She then describes what some scholars call a new form of Buddhism, Buddhist modernism, as a transnational tradition of its own. Transnational Buddhism, she says, is, quote, rational, universal, socially engaged, free of cultural and institutional accretions and devotional and ritual practices, and it privileges meditation as an empirically verifiable practice at its center, end quote. So this is the Buddhism that many of you are familiar with, right? This kind of Buddhism is characterized by de-traditionalization, de-mythologization, and psychologization. In other words, the tradition has been taken out of Buddhism, the myth has been taken out, and psychology has been emphasized. One of its core claims is the compatibility of Buddhism and modern science and the framing of Buddhism as the science of the mind. I'm sure that many of you will have heard of it described this way. Another core discourse of modernity that shapes this form of Buddhism is Romanticism, which emphasizes themes of interconnection, nature, spontaneity, and creativity. This is part of what attracted the counter-cultural hippie movements in the 60s to Buddhism. Another key feature of this kind of Buddhism is the decontextualization of meditation from its cosmology and ethics. The individualization of meditation, making it about private spiritual development rather than communal activity, and the psychologization of meditation, where it becomes a psychotherapeutic technique. 
in the rest of this chapter, Anne Gleig starts to explain how even in American Buddhism, it's really not so simple as convert versus immigrant Buddhism for all kinds of reasons. She describes a few alternative classification systems that scholars have used to try to talk about the different kinds of Buddhism in North America. But most of these are problematic. For example, Anne Gleig mentions a scholar named Waco Shannon Hickey, who we'll read about in a couple of weeks, who demonstrates how white privilege and racism underlie some of these classification systems. First, they seem to give white convert Buddhists authority over what counts as real American Buddhism. Second, they seem to assume that so-called white Buddhism is what's authentically American, whereas Asian Buddhism is somehow a foreign tradition located in North America. And third, it seems like white American Buddhists receive a lot more attention from both academic and popular audiences. Anne Gleig's book is largely a response to this kind of critique, and she shows how even meditation-based Buddhism in North America is increasingly racially diverse. Another important critique is that whereas this distinction suggests that Asian Buddhist communities are steeped in tradition, suggesting that they're unchanging or conservative, in fact, they're also transformed by modernist and postmodernist values. Anne Gleig cites a book called How the Swans Came to the Lake, A Narrative History of Buddhism in America by Rick Fields to describe so-called white Buddhism in America. See if this sounds familiar to you. So there are the six general trends of so-called white Buddhism. One, it's largely a lay movement, a layperson movement. Two, it's focused on meditation practices. Three, it joins Buddhist practice with Western psychology. Four, it's shaped by feminism. Five, it values social justice action. And six, it takes a democratic approach to power and authority. You can read a number of examples of how these trends and this form of white Buddhism has appeared in academic and popular writing about American Buddhism in Anne Gleig's chapter. She also writes about the important work that Joseph Chi has done on the role of white supremacy in the history of North American Buddhism and scholarship about it. We'll read more about that in our next unit, but in this chapter, we can learn a little bit uh, to start out with about how white supremacy can be seen to operate in many convert Buddhist groups in the way that the values and ideals of Euro-American white culture are represented as normal. I want to draw your attention here to the difference between cultural rearticulation and racial rearticulation. Cultural rearticulation, which sometimes we call cultural appropriation, is, quote, a way of representing religious tradition from another's culture into ideas and practices that are familiar and meaningful to people of one's own culture. So this kind of thing is inevitable when religions travel across cultures, right? And the history of Buddhism is full of this. This is what happened when Buddhism moved originally from India to China to Japan and so forth. And each new culture it met had to figure out how to interpret and understand it on its own terms. But racial rearticulation is something different. It is, quote, the acquisition of beliefs and practices of another's religious tradition and if infusing them with new meanings derived from one's own culture in ways that preserve the prevailing system of racial hegemony. So you can see the difference, right? 
Joseph T says that when Buddhism came to the West, it's not only cultural rearticulation or appropriation that occurred, it's also racial rearticulation. When early scholars of Buddhism dismissed ritual or devotional practices as superstitious, for example, this was done in a context in which white Euro-Americans were the only ones who could know what counts as real Buddhism. When only certain aspects of Buddhism were selected out as scientific and therefore more true, this came from a context where Euro-American white people were given authority over colonized non-white people. these ideas more over the coming weeks. But I hope that this chapter plants in your mind the idea that, as Anne Gleig puts it, white privilege has been a core factor in shaping North American meditation-based convert communities. This is a type of Buddhism that most commonly appears in the media or in popular culture. And so I think it's important that we start to try to understand this more carefully. But also, what Anne Gleig wants to convey in this book, and what we want to learn about in this course, is that there are actually lots of Buddhists in North, Amer in North America who are really challenging this history and taking Buddhism in new postmodern directions. Mm -hmm.